So, you know, thank you very much for coming out on the third sunny day that our summer has had to offer so far. So it shows a real dedication to the cause. Um, for those, I, I think I know everyone in the room, but I'm Nikki Palmer. I'm a lecturer here in criminal law. And, um, and today I have the privilege of, of introducing Mina Lautenbach, who has come to us from the um, University of Lausanne, although she's going to be moving to Leuven KU um, next year. So they've actually been involved in this in this discussion overall with Stéphane Parmentier. So it's nice to see the ongoing connections between the different institutions. So Mina is, um, she's a social psychologist by training, having done her PhD in social sciences at the University of Lausanne and has two master's degrees, um, one's in, one in forensic psychology and the other in social psychology. And then she's done, she's done a work in a range of areas and we're very glad that we managed to get you over into these discussions of transitional justice because her previous work was actually on the European Court of Human Rights, um, looking at the, the frameworks for discrimination there. Um, and previously to that, interestingly, she looked at the role of legal and moral dimensions in the attribution of criminal responsibility in, um, in fatal road traffic offences. So certainly taking very seriously ideas around, around the, the underlying principle of, of a harm underpinning a lot of our legal responses. Um, but now we've managed to lure her over to discussions on the Yugoslavia, or the, the Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. Um, and here she's taken a stance, as we spoke about at lunchtime today, that I think is, is very unique but also very, very necessary. Um, taking the perpetrators as the, as the principal point of discussion and looking critically at what an examination of these accounts provided by people indicted by the ICTY says about the legitimacy of international criminal justice overall. So at lunchtime today we got to hear about some of the methods underpinning it and I think if anything it just whets our appetite for hearing about some of your findings. So thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you very much. Um, well, as, as Nicola said, this is a research on people who've been uh, basically either convicted or acquitted by the ICTY, but in any way accused. Um, it's an interdisciplinary research. It involves international criminal law and social psychology, a bit of criminology too. It's funded by the Swiss National uh, Science Foundation and aiming at contributing to the evaluation of the legitimacy of international criminal justice. So we analyzed the perspective of 18 interv um, inter interviewees in any case, but also individuals accused by the ICTY, accused of either indirectly or directly participated in international crimes. Indirectly meaning ordered, planned, or not prevented a crime, directly, personally committing a crime. Now, such an approach gives perpetrators a voice and allows them to tell their own story about their involvement. Now, why is such a voice important to explore? Well, there's been a lot of research on victims. There's been a lot of research on populations in general which have experienced war. Uh, much less attention has been directed to perpetrators, especially those accused of mass crimes. The different studies where one has studied the issue of collective violence and perpetrators 
concern social and political factors, the role of intergroup processes, which is more social psychological oriented, and the motives and forms of participation. Now, uh, for the last bit of uh, research on motives and forms of participation, Many of them are based on archival information stemming from legal cases. There are only a few qualitative studies aiming at really understanding why people participate in such violence and how they participate in such violence. These studies demonstrate, among other factors, the significance of identity and power concerns for individuals who were involved in such actions. However, there is a lack of empirical research which is really focused directly on these uh, international criminals' perceptions about their responsibility. Yet such an investigation is warranted since the confrontation between these perceptions and the conventional objectives attributed to international criminal justice is very important. Uh, this would bring a significant contribution to the evaluation of international criminal justice case law and the legitimacy of its practices. Judging the accused has become the principal objective of international criminal justice. However, the realization of such an objective depends on the acceptance by the convicted of the legitimacy of justice and its sanctions. It's thus essential to evaluate the impact of this justice on convicted persons. Uh, this is all the more necessary since um, international criminal justice is currently at crossroads because of the imminent closure of the ad hoc tribunals and the onset of trials at the ICC. Now, previous research indicates that involvement in collective violence uh, is often the result of an interaction between socioeconomic and group level factors. It's basically the interaction between the social dynamics which authorized and legitimized harm doing and the extent of autonomy and agency of individuals. People were more likely to be drawn to collective processes and internalized harm doing roles if these resonated with their individual needs, values, motivations, anxieties. Uh, now, the appraisal that we, we want to carry out, or we have carried out, uh, uses an in-depth social, psychological, and critical analysis of the structural determinants underlying the discursive reconstruction of involvement and accountability. And here, power identity, power <clears throat> relations, and identity are significant frames that we will take into consideration, which have been also used in research to explain collective violence. They are structuring elements, which are often implicitly dis uh, uh, expressed in discourse, and I will show you how it's done also here. Um, in terms of the assumptions that are basing our study, well, they're, they're based on critical discourse analysis, um, it, we make the assumption that relations of, relationships of power as well as identity concerns are central in structuring the discursive reconstructions of involvement and responsibility. These accounts are thus expected to be tainted by the social processes related to the structural and normative framework uh, in which the conflict unfolded, but also to be shaped by the social context of the communicated event. Now, interviews, interviewees are active agents. They produce their discourse um, 
in a, they, they produce through their discourse a reality which is meaningful to them. It relates to processes or social identities which are important, as well as power relations which are also meaningful to them. Um, and we will demonstrate here through the findings how this involvement is recontextualized and transformed in discourse, as well as how these narratives are shaped by the nature of the collective identity and the relations the speaker refers to. In terms of my research questions, well, the first group of research questions is how do respondents allo allocate meaning to their involvement in the conflict? How are events evaluated, explained, legitimized in terms of causes, reasons, purposes? Second is how do they represent themselves in these discourses? Is their agency described as passive and dependent on others' actions? Or to the contrary, do they put emphasis on their capacity of action? And three, how do identity and dominance concerns related to the event recounted and to the communicated situation shape these recontextualizations? What are the discursive strategies and linguistic means which reflect the structuring role of power relations and group affiliation? And by linguistic means and discursive strategies, I mean the salience of certain features, putting certain emotions um, into emphasis, implicit, implicit versus explicit meanings, and so on. Now, very quickly with the method, um, these were semi-directed interviews with 18 respondents. Three were acquitted, and 15 others were convicted and sentenced to prison. Some of them we met in prison, others had already been released, so we met them where, wherever they were living. Uh, seven were military men or politicians at commanding levels. Three were military men or police officers at, at levels of coordination and implementation of orders. Four were civilians involved in the political organization or the physical implementation of crimes. And four were actual perpetrators. Uh, in terms of national affiliations, these are the different national affiliations we, we had. And of course, critical discourse analysis was used here. Now, let's get to the findings. Well, we have two different, um, I would say, two big categories of findings. The first concerns the different meanings that they, that they um, gave to their involvement in the conflict in terms of lack of agency. Uh, these reconstructions of involvement are often related to the objective role held by the individuals in the conflict and are shaped by power relationships. Uh, their discourse really reveals here specific lenses, self-presenting and legitimizing lack of agency. But there's a second category of findings that I will also show um, where we will see that they also take on a subject position which upholds and reflects the dominant social order through implicit features uh, in discourse, revealing the construction of a victimized self, but also the discursive hold of the speaker. Now let's get first to the, uh, the uh, meaning, the categories of meanings um, about lack of agency. Uh, the first one 
is uncertainty and decision-making in the chaos of the conflict. It's, it reveals a sense of powerlessness in relation to the chaotic nature of the conflict situation. And it, exp it is expressed in two different ways. One is the submission to informa informational uncertainty, and the other is actions and decision-making are constrained and compelled by the war context. For submission to informational uncertainty, well, a situation of conflict involves a breakdown of social norms, where people's everyday life is disrupted. Usual bearings are totally distorted, and rational, rationals of action and behavior are inverted. In such an unstructured context, information about events is described as lacking or unreliable. The relationship between lack of information and the perceived scope of action of the individual within this collective setting is clearly salient in this type of discourse. Now, informational uncertainty uh, is also highlighted at the civilian level. And these representations will convey a certain difficulty of discerning between various sources of information and knowing for sure what really is happening. The observed escalation in conflict between communities was thus the product of a security dilemma where people started arming in reactions to the rumors of violence perpetrated against the community. In the face of such insecurity and contradictory information, Individual fears gradually escalate, and people brace for a grim future. Um, behaviors and opinions here could not be based on objective and rational facts, but had to rely on simplistic explanations and vague interpretations of events, as well as also relayed by the most immediate sources of information, which is the media, political rallies, Communication, as these representations convey, is a key factor in the way people are going to understand their social environment. Informational un uncertainty has a significant influence on group dynamics, as, as social psychological research has shown. In a situation of intergroup polarization, people are more likely to find validation for rumors from a member of their group and not the other group. Why? Because their affiliation makes them more trust, a more trustworthy opinion sources. Bias exposure to information coming from the in-group is even more likely as polarization progressively sets in and as the intergroup conflict escalates. Now, for the second type of, uh, of meaning, um, decision-making for military men is represented as unavoidably based on unequivocal facts. Such ambiguity is frequently evoked to justify actions and omissions. Representations of those involved in the conflict as civilians also express a certain disappearance of their emotional and intellectual bearings in a situation where total confusion reigns. From day, one day to another, people were all, suddenly all caught in a worldwide wind of violence. Now, the escalation of events 
the structural dynamics of reciprocation of violence between communities are put across explicitly in such discur discursive reconstructions. Collective responses to the menacing outgroup are described as unstructured and disorganized. In the state of emergency, their discourse emphasizes the priority of maintaining order and security for one's community, which supposes solidarity and loyalty to one's group. It's quite clear in these, in these two, two types of discourse. One is, uh, is uh, the one, number 10 is a politician and number six is a civilian. But you see it in, in, in two different dimensions. Connections with the group grow more intense as the process of intergroup differentiation between them and us becomes increasingly evident. They stress that in the, fa in the face of attack uh, to one's community, as a member of a group, one is morally compelled to fight for the survival of one's people. Distancing, distancing oneself from the fate of the community one is tied to and not getting involved is, I mean, could be a, a seen as an act of treason. Their reconstructions here clearly stress that the moral compass which drove their actions was primarily influenced by the impulsive and human need to protect their in-group and was much less attuned to rational considerations uh, related to the legitimacy of their actions. In this analysis of discourse about uncertainty in decision-making, what strikes the most is the sense of passiveness they imply. They present themselves as passive puppets who are submitted to the contingency of the conflict. Actions are always described as a reaction to sudden, uncontrollable, unverifiable, unidentifiable elements. They seem to place themselves in a reactive and non-initiating subject position, whereby they had no other choice than to act upon obscure facts or unmanageable conducts. Now the second category is media and politics as powerful forces. Most respondents conveyed the feeling of having been submitted to the powerful influence of external forces set to define the direction and the outcome of the conflict in which they were involved. These influential forces and their nationalistic ideological stance uh, are represented as normative references which legitimized their defensive impulses. They were active in propagating fear-raising um, fear disinformation, thereby precipitating communities in a cycle of violence. Their influence in terms of power relations in society and their relation to the speaker's social identity are clearly highlighted here. The subject position conveyed by respondents reflects explicitly the significance of such relations of dominance in maintaining the status quo in their reconstruction of involvement. Reflecting once again passivity, their discourse implies that they were just spectators of structural dynamics which were imposed on them. Now, respondents also castigate political identities whether national or international, as being responsible of fueling nationalistic and religious feelings in order to promote intergroup conflict. 
discourses here are significantly organized around the power of credible and legitimate sources of influence. Political leaders, esteemed intellectuals, and this is very important, so the role of esteemed intellectuals, um, acting as entrepreneurs of identity and contaminating shared social representations held in communities. Their revered status encouraged people to internalize these scapegoating ideologies and identify with the behavioral logics intimated by such beliefs. Leadership and, and shared social identity mutually interact and influence each other here. Communities were driven to identify themselves along national lines, which made them more likely to accept the leadership of institutions and elites who propagated messages which were prototypical of their shared social identity, but the leadership in turn mobilized further this shared social identity and strengthened it in order to further their self-interested self political agendas and uphold, of course, intergroup conflict. Now, instruments under the control of the political leadership, of course, the mass media is also pinpointed as blameworthy in its role in maintaining conflict by poisoning people's minds and leading them into a frenzy of hatred and aggression. Their moral and even legal accountability in, in certain uh, cases in propagating false, exaggerated, or distorted information is clearly emphasized. As the information came from credible channels of communication, people were more likely to take such information at face value. The propaganda aroused emotional reactions in individuals and provided a sense of shared experience and solidarity, thereby reinforcing social cohesion. This also helped mobilize collectives by strengthening ties within national communities. The power of mass communication to diffuse rapidly relevant and salient information, such as news of life-threatening events, uh, to an extensive number of receptors is a well-documented observation. It is in times of uncertainty that mass media are especially likely to influence people's perceptions of the world that surrounds them. Now, the third category of meaning is acting within a group. Um, respondents in this study are mostly coordinators and tacticians, military men, policemen, or civilians, who are accused of helping their hierarchy to mastermind the social context that allowed immoral actions to be considered necessary and morally right. Some recontextualize their actions as one of the many elements of a machine which overwhelmed them and which functioned thanks to the contribution of many other people like them. They present the extent of their agency as limited to making sure that their portion of the work was done. In this perspective, respondents, mostly military men, do not invoke a simple obedience to wrongful orders in the line of, of Milgram's fin findings. Their discourse reflects more processes of social influence, such as identification or internalization. For example, one respondent implies, as you can see in these two um, examples of discourse, he implies that he internalized his group's values and did not question the orders he was given. Because they came from authorities and an institution, he revered and was loyal to. 
the enterprise he was brigaded in was condoned by esteemed and authoritative decision makers. It was therefore assumed to be legitimate. They were part of an institution which grounds its functioning on discipline and obedience to orders, the military. They felt obligated to meet the requirement of their position because they had made a moral commitment to fulfill their duty. Another element which is salient in the representations of soldiers is the feeling of being part of a process which is fragmented along the actions of multiple um, <clears throat> actors operating in the name of a shared collective identity. Not only did they integrate the social identity related to their affiliation, that is loyal to X community and sent to defend that community into their personal identity, but also the normative framework that is associated with such an affiliation, the ideological beliefs, the aims, the values. Thus, they convey their scope of action as being very limited. It is constrained by the norms that dictate the functioning of the system in which they're acting. And given their affiliation and the fact that their personal identity is strongly determined by their social identity, any behavior that would be counter-normative would be threatening and must be avoided. Now, this group action uh, perspective conveys the impression that respondents were not really aware that by their actions they were participating in a process based on wrongful objectives and outcomes. They were probably not aware of the explicit objectives of the process they were contributing to. However, it's also likely that they didn't attempt to uncover or explore further the ambiguous or hazy aspects of their involvement. As members of a group, some internalized their group's actions without critically questioning these or their behavioral consequences. Responsibility here was diffused. It was easy in these conditions to do like everybody else and turn a blind eye or just look the other way. When in doubt as to the legitimacy of their actions, they may have strived to the norm, to conform to the norm, and convinced themselves that because all the other members were doing the same thing, their actions have to have had a righteous purpose. Moreover, by relinquishing responsibility to the commanding and legitimate authority, they may simply have felt unobligated to scrutinize the morality of their actions. They are self-deceiving themselves without being aware of it. Because with time, they probably have come to believe in their own subjective interpretation of their role. This acting within a group perspective can, constitutes another dimension demonstrating the prominence of a passive stance in the recounting of involvement and the related construction of self. Now, having said all that, I will get to the second part of findings, where we see the implicit discursive means which are employed to control the communicative event and to structure it around a specific identity and power construction. Now, first of all, so these are different linguistic devices and strategies where we can see uh, how the person constructs a meaningful identity and reflects power relations. What strikes first of all is that 
speakers repeatedly draw the attention of the listener to their victimized self and social identity while eliding the outgroup's hardships. The victimhood position is reflected, for example, uh, by the expression of very strong emotions and a vivid detail of the in-group's suffering, which personalizes events and renders them concrete. Terribly mistreated, tortured to an inhuman limit, limit barely survived, saw my fellow combatants die. But this construction stands in stark contracts, con contrast sorry, <clears throat> with the lack of details, as well as the unemotional and clinical vocabulary attached to the mention of the outgroup and its victims. They refer to crimes as incidents, issues, things, situations. Now another way for them to also uh, have a discursive hold is to present a positive and virtuous self in order to mitigate the less positive aspects of their identity. Some will reformulate their involvement so as to make them appear as good Samaritans with no harmful intentions. That's the first um, example. I begged the opposite whenever I could, not to shoot at each other, but to sit and talk, but with no avail. Another example is some, some will acknowledge harm, I mean harm doing, but will oppose it to very righteous actions which were carried out in parallel. There are good behaviors, but they're also, uh, sorry, they're bad behaviors, but they're also good behaviors. And this is a respondent who says that, who's basically admitted raping a woman, but adds that he provides basic assistance, he provided basic assistance to another and employs this rationalization. Now, power and identity structures also manifest themselves in the way in which speakers, through logical affirmations which are presented as indisputable, impose their reading of the conflict on the listener. Such discourses will delegitimize other possible versions of involvement. And another example is this person who was talking about deportation of civilians and portraying this deportation of civilians as the only solution to save them. Now, just to wrap up with the findings, um, I'll just give you a few examples concerning perceptions of responsibility. Um, Respondents described the ascription of individual criminal responsibility like a burden that they had to cope with and which was imposed on them. And you can see it through a very emotional tone, for example, that they give to this type of discourse. But also a feeling of powerlessness in the face of such an ascription. The sense which is put put across here is being trapped, defenseless, vulnerable, losing control of their life, being stunned, paralyzed, dazed. But also, another stance which is put across is a presentation of a passive self. Uh, victimhood is put forward. This responsibility is experienced as a catastrophe, as a calamity. Uh, it's a devastation in their lives from which they will never recover. 
there's the idea of a stigma. It has changed everything in their lives, has overturned their whole existence. Whether or not they were acquitted, uh, I mean, whether they're acquitted or convicted, they feel that they cannot give their, get their lives back. They're condemned to wear this st stigma for the rest of their life. It's a label they can't get rid of. It marks you for forever. Now, in contrast to that, uh, their discourse expressing lack of guilt reflects detachment and emotional distance. Some, mostly high-ranking military or political leaders, simply express having no sense of guilt. They feel innocent and their discourse expresses a certain aloofness with regard to the responsibility they were attributed. Others, mostly military men, this is the second example, uh, are, who are held accountable, these are military men held accountable for command responsibility, invoke the lack of connection between the crimes and them. They don't feel con concerned about these crimes because they don't, I mean, they concern somebody else's actions. They feel off the hook and entitled to express it. Finally, others also evoke the feeling that such an ascription was experienced as unreal. They readily admit that something happened, but disenfranchise themselves from any responsibility. They were just observing all this from a distance and didn't understand how this could be related to them, basically. That's the impression it gives. Now, to the conclusions. Well, well first of all, when referring to their involvement, Respondents discursively construct their self as being subjected and compelled to react to external forces and influences. They show, I mean, they express a lack of, lack of agency due to the overpowering and overwhelming characteristics of the conflict and its collective determinants. Uh, they also positioned themselves as a passive element of a system which operated to attain outcomes clearly beyond their individual control. Yet analysis also uncovered the discursive strategies and linguistic devices which denote power and identity interests. Um, these various implicit features that uh, we, we, we saw helped them maintain hegemony and power by reflecting meaningful social dimensions, such as their affiliation to a certain social identity and their loyalty to the group. The fact that their discourses were organized by the legitimation of dominance discourse, sorry, dominance structures is not surprising. Violence was collectively and institutionally normalized during the Yugoslav conflicts. One can thus only expect that legitimizing ideologies of necessity, duty, self-defense would be invoked to justify engaging in behaviors which violated normal normative standards to structure their account. Now, through such an active process of construction of self and meaning, they revealed the person they would like the exterior to perceive them. And may have also regained part of the control they had lost through their experience of justice and detention. Our findings here recognize the moral responsibility of those involved in collective violence. They're not morally ignorant. They're motivated to present a moral self and
and detract attention to their, from their deviant identity. This is not really surprising. In congruence with their lifestyle before and after the conflict, they consider themselves as ordinary law-abiding citizens. This standpoint is also galvanized uh, by the lack of legal con consensus around the extent of their responsibility. Some respondents were acquitted. In other cases, judgments often included dissenting opinions about the culpability of, uh, of the accused. And last but not least, certain forms of liability attributed to indirect perpetrators those mostly aiming at prosecuting leaders and top-level deciders are the subject of many debates as to their validity. Another point is that respondents still have the support of many fellow citizens who acclaim them as heroes and martyrs. Now, we are in... Um, sorry. <laughs> um, we are in a victim-oriented and human rights-oriented era where international relations and institutions are dominated by moral considerations. Legal accountability is no more just a moral exhortation and wishful thinking for victims, but a moral obligation related to criminal policy goals, such as ending impunity and enforcing international norms in order to attain peace through justice. In the current focus of legal accountability for international crimes, there is a risk, as pointed by Van Sliedgret, that international criminal justice, in its will to diffuse moral outrage through its retributive function, ends up undermining the principle of individual culpability through irrational legal judgments. Well, these findings raise several questions. <laughs> The first question is the issue of moral perception in times of conflict and its influence um, and the influence of social context on this moral perception. Um, in our findings, the normative landmark which shaped the moral compass of our respondents and gave sense to the actions seems to have been their social identity and collective needs. This in-group focus also probably encouraged them to exclude their opponent from their moral universe of obligation and become increasingly less concerned about applying moral standards to their interactions with the other group. In such a context, for example, precautions are more likely to have been taken to ensure one's group's livelihood than to guarantee the rights, the respect of the rights of the rival group. Um, for example, you know, making sure that the combatants you're shooting at are not civilians. Findings also suggest that norms of morality are not rigidly, rigidly fixed, but can be interpreted very flexibly. In that sense, respondents do not deny the raw facts, but they rationalize their actions and involvement within specific interpretative frameworks. Some emphasize the justification of self-defense, while others appeal to their respect for rules and professionalism or their loyalty to the group. 
These discourses reverse the logics of reasoning applied to involvement and reinterpret the situation to fit a morally defensible lens. Yet such findings also bring into question uh, whether the involvement that they, I mean their involvement, was that far removed from the actions of reasonable human beings if confronted to a similar normative setting. When actions are defined as necessary and therefore condoned by a particular social context, social psychological research has showed that immoral behavior can be perceived as a legitimate means to pursue a higher purpose. Making sense of the legitimacy of conduct in intergroup conflict cannot be reduced to a binary and arbitrary, arbitrary delimitation between bad and good, immoral, moral, and so on. In that sense, these findings certainly add support to the debate whether international criminal justice should be more concerned with the social processes leading to normative changes which facilitate criminal involvement. Given the social reality of international crimes and the findings of this study, there are many reservations as to the suitability of determining, determining accountability for such involvement uniquely on conventional criminal principles such as retribution or deterrence. Can one realistically expect that international criminal justice will contribute to peace and deter people from engaging in such actions when more immediate factors such as social ties and group dynamics are more likely to guide their moral compass than norms of international law. Now, the last question is, should one afford more consideration to the moral responsibility of the collective? Indirect and direct perpetrators did not act in a normative vacuum. And collective responsibility in this concept is more related to a moral evaluation than a legal judgment. People can be considered morally accountable because as human beings, they participated in the normative framework that allowed moral wrongdoing and did not prevent it. Even though they did not feel legally accountable, since persecutions and violence were condoned and legitimized by the societal normative framework. Many scholars have suggested that societal moral responsibility for the conflict should be confronted. Otherwise, myths of collective innocence will prevail and the persecutory ideologies that justified atrocity will not be delegitimized. The moral accountability of the collective can be addressed through different policies and practices, such as truth commissions, education forum, public discussion forum, media analysis, and so on. Relying uniquely on criminal trials to attribute in individual responsibility, especially to high-profiled defendants, for their masterminding responsibility, with the risk of undermining the legitimacy of such trials, can inhibit rather than promote reconciliation. This is all the more problematic, given that the legitimacy of international criminal justice is already challenged by issues such as prosecutorial and judicial discretion, as well as its political underpinnings.